A 14-year-old girl is told she's not good at science, but goes on to be a professor in chemistry at a top-tier research university, how to deal with the fear of failure in your day-to-day -day life, and building molecules to meet the needs of the 21st century, all in this episode of Goggles Off. Welcome everybody to another episode of Goggles Off, the show where I step outside of the laboratory to talk to scientists about their lives and their research. Today it is my absolute pleasure to be joined by my guest, uh, Professor of Chemistry at Emory University at uh, Atlanta, Georgia. Um, Jen, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast. Yeah, I, you know, typically with these shows, I try to dive into my guests research a little bit first and then kind of go into their more personal side of them. Uh, but I think I'm going to flip that for this episode just because of, you know, the context of how we met. And so we met uh, at the biomedical engineering retreat uh, as I started my PhD at the University of Texas at Austin, right? I was in biomedical engineering, hence the reason I'm at the retreat. And typically the keynote speaker at these retreats will give a conversation about their research and, you know, scientists love science. So it's usually great. Uh, but yours was different. You chose to talk about, you know, overcoming adversity and overcoming the fear of failure uh, in, you know, the scientific space. And really, this is applicable outside of the scientific space because everybody fails. Um, so my first question is, you know, why are you so passionate about this subject? And, you know, how did this kind of start? How did you start communicating this message? Oh, wow. Um, you know, I'm actually passionate about it because I'm passionate about science and because I care deeply about the people who do science. And so the way that I like to think about it is that there's the actual science we do and what most people would think of, you know, quote unquote, being a scientist, which is being in lab and running experiments and collecting data and analyzing data and making graphs and communicating it all. And that's obviously the core of what we do. But then there's this whole other set of skills and psychological principles that I like to think of as almost, it creates this coefficient out in front of the experiments we run, or sometimes the even exponential up above it, that determines how effectively all of that work we do in lab actually gets translated into results and new discoveries. And we talk a lot about the actual experiments, but we talk relatively little about all of those things that then impact how well we can turn our experiments into productivity. And I realized along the way just how important this was and how little we were talking about it, but that also, especially among graduate students and postdocs and early career researchers, there's a lot of desire to be talking about these things, to be talking about the fact that everyone fails or to be talking about how our imposter syndrome might keep us from doing an experiment or applying for a program or a fellowship or award, thinking about how, um, you know, how we feel about seeking out advice and whether that builds our confidence or whether that's something that we are afraid of. All of those things impact our ultimate success. And also the psychologists and you know, organizational leadership experts have been studying this stuff for years and years. And there's a lot of really interesting research that we can draw from in order to think about how we can be more successful in the research we do as scientists. Okay, yeah, and I think that's an amazing message. I mean, everybody faces failure in their day-to-day -day activity, whether you're a scientist or not. Uh, but something I often describe myself as is a professional failure as a scientist, right? I mean, I'm, I'm supposed to go into the lab and, you know, if an experiment doesn't work, I'm supposed to, you know, go back to the drawing board and fix it. And, you know, it's, it's something that is so prevalent in our career. Um, so yeah, the message is, you know, not really talked about enough. And I think one thing that is kind of damaging to the scientific community is, you know, a lot of times there's like this almost toxic positivity where everybody around you is, you know, doing so well and you look at everybody, oh, their research is going great or, you know, oh, everything in their life is, you know, you know, all the ducks are in the row and that's not how it is for me. And so you can kind of look at yourself as if, you know, there's something wrong, but really, you know, everybody faces adversity and struggles in their life. And, uh, you know, this, this is profound, like the way that you tackle these adversities and the way that you approach these challenges can be quite dynamic and people kind of approach them in different ways. Um, 
you in your talk you talked about uh the book is called mindset i'm blanking on the author's name who, who wrote that? carol dweck okay and um so that book is all about you know uh you know, how your mindset can impact, you know, the way you see the world and, you know, the way you live your life. Um, and they talk about, you know, the fixed mindset versus the growth mindset. Could you, could you kind of go into a little detail about those two? Yeah, I would love to talk about that. And I actually want to talk about um, or respond to two things that you just said that really resonate with me about being a professional failure. Oh my goodness, we all have that. I, when I talked about failure with one of my classes once, I went back and started thinking about how often have I failed as a scientist? And when you start to do the math and you think, goodness, okay, I worked in a lab for, you know, I don't know, a dozen years or so. I worked, okay, five days a week times, you know, 50 weeks a year. You know, there was some vacation in there, but also some Saturdays. And then how many times a day did I have an experiment fail? Was definitely more than one, hopefully fewer than 10 on an average day. And all of a sudden you start doing the math and I have failed like tens of thousands of times in my scientific career. And so we really are professionals at failing. And we, the goal isn't necessarily to stop failing, but to keep having better failures that our early failures are because, oh, I forgot to add that reagent, or I didn't really design the right controls, or I didn't look at enough preps to think about what was the best way to do that. And then the hope is that as we move along, we start failing better. We start failing in the sorts of ways of, oh, according to all the literature out there, this should have worked and it didn't work. And so that means that there's something interesting here to learn. And so the types of failures matter, but we should keep failing and we should keep talking about it because something else you said that is so unbelievably important is the way that we perceive our failure and our frequency of failure relative to the people around us. And so if you wanna do an interesting exercise with a room full of people, ask them to write down, you know, say, look at, you know, sitting in a room of graduate students, I didn't do this in my talk, but I could have, say, look at the person next to you. What percentage of the day as that person's doing research, do you think they feel like they're failing? And then, you know, in complete honesty, say, what percentage of the day do you feel like you're failing? And, you know, if you combine all those numbers, if you do this as a poll, almost across the board, we think that other people are failing a lot less than we are, but when you look around, you're like, literally everyone thinks that. And so the math just doesn't work out. And we are perceiving a lot more failure in us than we are in the people around us. And when we start talking more openly about that and just start realizing that everyone else around us is having the same struggle, just normalizing that is a huge part of being able to move forward. And while failure, you know, you never want to fail. Um, I also want to avoid the toxic positivity of saying, oh, yes, failure is amazing. Because as a graduate student, as a scientist, yeah, well, that, that might, failure might not be the end all, but you kind of need to succeed in order to finish your PhD, in order to finish your postdoc, and to get papers, and to get funding. As a faculty member, we need to succeed in order to get funding. And so we also can't minimize the very real pain of failure. But what Carol Dweck and other people's research allows us to do is to say that you know, it isn't that the goal is to fail more often. The goal is to, if we can overcome our fear of failure, we actually become less likely to fail. And that's really the key. And so with her hypothesis around growth mindset and fixed mindset that ties into other people's hypotheses, like uh, David Conroy has done work on fear of failure and why we fear failure. Um, there's other work on things like coping um, or goal orientation. But what all of those really come together and a unifying theme in those is that if you are afraid of failure or if you have a, a fixed mindset, kind of all of these things that go together, then you're a lot more likely to do things that will make you more likely to fail. And so that looks like well, when you do have a failure, whether from a fixed mindset, one of the last things you want to do is go and talk to a mentor or even a peer about your experiment that failed. But if you think about it, if you're willing to go and talk to a few peers and mentors about your failed experiment and get advice for what you should do differently, which one of those paths is going to lead you towards a greater likelihood of success in the future? Um, or the one that really made me realize that 
the the work that was well, when I was reading the book mindset, the thing that made me realize, oh my goodness, all of the people that I work with, we all need to read this and we all need to be talking about this, is where she talked about how if we are afraid of failure and we have this fixed mindset, then when we're in a situation where we might fail, we are likely to engage in a subtle self-sabotage so that when it fails, you have that backup of, well, I kind of knew that and I didn't really try. And there's a quote in her book, it's actually from uh, Nadia Slaughter-Sonberg, but it says, nothing is harder than saying, I gave it my best and it wasn't enough. I might not have gotten the quote perfect, but wow, that lands. And I realized we are working in a high failure environment. If we were working in you know, an accounts payable department where you're doing your job and it's definitely a challenging and very important job, but it's not one where you're going to fail as often. Um, maybe that doesn't matter as much, but where we're walking into uncertainty and an extremely high likelihood of failure every minute of our day, if we are sabotaging ourselves in subtle ways, that's, oh, well, maybe I, I, I took that enzyme out of the freezer and I I thought to myself, it's that little voice in the back of your head that says, well, that's kind of an old bottle and maybe I should use the newer one. But then it's that little voice that says, oh no, just, just stick with the old one. Because then if your PCR doesn't work, you can say, oh, well, it was the enzyme and I, I, I knew it. And if we're making all of those little decisions on a daily basis, how much is that impacting our success as scientists? And when that landed for me, and I realized that I do that, I do all, I have that example because those are the sorts of things that I do. I do that now as a faculty member, when I'm proofreading a grant we're about to submit, I'll see some little thing, some little weakness in the argument. And that voice comes into my head of, oh, just leave it there. And um, because then if it gets rejected, well, it wasn't because of the idea was bad. It was just that little thing. And it's like, no, shouldn't we want to submit the best grant possible? So it, it makes that being willing to confront the possibility of failure and have that growth mindset can actually make you more likely to succeed in the long term. Wow. I mean, it's just a message that is so important for like me to hear right now. Um, but before I kind of get into that, uh, you know, just, just so that some terms are defined. So a fixed mindset is that, you know, you believe that your basic qualities such as intelligence and talent are traits that are set. Uh, talent and, and intelligence alone create your success, and you're always driven by this desire to appear intelligent. And then with the growth mindset, uh, intelligence and talent are just, you know, the starting point. Uh, you can develop in any ability through hard work, thus hard work leads to success, uh, and you're driven by the, you know, desire to learn and improve. And, you know, reading about these, I definitely am the growth mindset, which is, you know, I guess a good thing, but, you know, I don't want to say either is better than the other, but I certainly have benefited from my growth mindset. So right now, for example, uh, I was a chemistry major for my undergraduate, and in, in my actual studies, my research was more biophysics, uh, but now I've transitioned into a biomedical engineering department, and the very first class I'm taking is a computational methods uh, for biome uh, biomedical engineers, and I've never really done any coding at all in my life, no experience with this, uh, and everybody else in the class seems to have all this experience with coding, and they're all good at it. And I even asked the professor, I asked, oh, hey, is this, you know, an intro level? I'm going to use the analogy of Spanish as a, as a you know, coding yeah. language because it's a little bit easier to understand. But, oh, you know, have, I've never heard a word of Spanish in my life. Is this an intro Spanish course? She said, oh, totally. And then I start and it's actually the first assignment is to write a 10 page paper in Spanish without any grammatical errors. So I was just thrown into the deep end. And, you know, no, the, nobody's really teaching me to learn how to code right now. Uh, and if I had a fixed mindset, right, I could have potentially been like, I'm going to drop the class. It's not going to work out for me. But I know that through hard work and through dedication, if I put the time in, I will get better at something and I will improve. And you know what? I actually this last week put, you know, maybe maybe 50 hours into this assignment and I'm great at it now. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling really confident in it. Like I, I'm enjoying it thoroughly and I feel a tremendous amount of growth at the start of my Ph.D., um, and that's kind of amazing. It, it's like, you know, my secret chain, because actually coding, I grew up in a generation where we just did not learn. I mean, there weren't hardly computers and we definitely didn't learn coding. And that is the one thing where, or it's, it's one of many, but one of the most insidious ones where it bumps up onto my work often enough. And every time my fixed mindset pops up and says, 
nah, you're too old to learn that. There's no way you could learn that. Only those smart computer people can figure out how to code. And now that my 13 year old is learning it, I'm, I think this is my opportunity to say, okay, let's, let's learn Python together. Teach me what you're learning. You have this book, maybe I could do that as well. So I just had to point out how closely your example hit home for me. Awesome. And you know, uh, it kind of reminds me of an exercise you did in a previous lecture where you asked the audience to describe an area of their life where they're comfortable with failure and an area where they're not comfortable with failure to kind of, you know, help them realize, you know, that failure, you know, can be a good thing. It can also be, you know, a, a very scary thing. So for me, an area where I'm not scared of failure at all is, you know, in the, in the gym or when I'm on a run, right? I'm actually pushing for failure a lot of the time, right? That's like the goal a lot of the time. Um, and I have a very positive relationship there. But then, you know, when things of, you know, your career or something like that, you know, failure is a little bit more daunting. And this is kind of silly, right? Why do you have these different viewpoints towards the failure? Um, and so I think, you know, cultivating that positive relationship with failure in the gym or, you know, in whatever aspect of your life, whatever it is, maybe it's playing video games, whatever, um, you know, I think, you know, having that same positive outlook for failure, that growth mindset is very powerful and has only helped me throughout my career. So I thought that's that amazing and, and super good on you that you stuck it out with the class and we're able to learn coding. I think about it. And when I was in graduate school, I think I probably would have dropped the class. So that's fantastic. That's a, a great sign for much success to come. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes, yes. It's actually happened several times throughout my career. Where I really had to had to grow. But I think I think that's, you know, everybody will face those milestones in their life. Um, you know, another you mentioned kind of uh, other books that are, you know, important in understanding uh, how to deal with adversity. Uh, and one book that you mentioned in a talk was one of my favorite books of all time, Man's Search for Meaning uh, by Viktor Frankl. Uh, which is just a fantastic book for my audience. I really think you should read it. It's, it's fantastic. I mean, uh, Viktor Frankl, to give a little background, he was a psychologist uh, and was interned in the uh, internment camps, the Nazi internment camps during uh, World War II. And, you know, he talks about, the whole book is about, you know, the meaning of life is to search for meaning in life. And he uses this very extreme example of, you know, what it was like in the concentration camps uh, to, paint this picture, he noticed that people who, you know, found meaning in their lives and, you know, found meaning through their suffering or, you know, found just meaning in general were the ones who were surviving. Uh, and, you know, he could see if somebody had like given up that they, you know, had they, they lost meaning in their life, then he knew that that person was going to die. And, you know, the very extreme example of, you know, the internment camps, right, that's super extreme. Uh, but then, you know, his actual message is, is so profound because, you know, finding meaning gives you an intrinsic, uh, you know, motivational source that can push you through really anything in life. And so that book is just fantastic. And when you mentioned it in your talk, I was just, I was like, oh my gosh, my favorite book. So, yeah. Yes, I'm, I'm fascinated by this concept of transformative resilience, that when something bad happens, what, what is it that makes the difference between something bad happens and we just never recover from it and we're never the same or something bad happens and yes, it's still horrible, but then some people come out of it, it's almost like a, a slingshot, you know, the stress and the adversity pulls the slingshot back. And sometimes it just snaps and that's it. And sometimes once things change, then that person is just like the rock coming out of the slingshot and more driven and more motivated than ever, or it allows people, it inspires people to do things that they would never have done had they not gone through that adversity. And it's really interesting to think about well, what is it that determines that? And certainly a lot of it, there's certainly privilege that's tied to that. There's a lot of just societal privilege. There's the privilege of having people who support you and who go through it with you makes a huge difference. And, um, you know, I, I love how Viktor Frankl talks about all of that. And I think it's so incredibly relevant to today as you hear people already with COVID. I mean, goodness, a year ago with COVID, I was already hearing people talking about how there's post-traumatic stress disorder, but also post-traumatic stress growth. And it gets into the idea of transformative resilience, but reflecting on what you said earlier, there's also, it, it's a slippery slope into toxic positivity and how we manage that is, you know, we, we need to be really careful 
how as a society, and I think especially people in, in positions of power and authority, how they're talking about that um, and, and staying on that side of, you know, where I always fall, at least with my own adversity is, well, what happened, it, it, it stinks and it's not fair, but nobody else is gonna come fix it for me. And so it might not be fair, but I'm the only one who chooses how much it impacts my life from here on out. The person who caused this adversity you know, often doesn't even have the ability to fix it, even if they wanted to. And, um, and so actually that's a, a foundation in, in some forms of therapy as well, actually of this idea of it, it's not fair, but probably, you know, we ourselves are gonna be the ones to have to fix it. But then, yeah, Viktor Frankl is, is such an expert. You know, I've just very poorly said that everything that he says beautifully um, and, and so profoundly. And I think it, it has a tremendous relevance to what we're facing with the COVID-19 pandemic and, and all the things happening in our world. Wow, yeah. And, you know, it, it, the idea of the slingshot is kind of interesting. And, you know, I don't want to trivialize anybody's, you know, adversities or anything like that, but to kind of share, you know, my own relationship with adversity and kind of how adversity can, you know, be positive, even though you might not think that it is going to be right away. So my brother was born with like a very rare genetic condition that makes him cognitively like a two-year-old. Um, it's called Angelman syndrome in terms of phenotype. He's very similar to Down syndrome. Uh, and it's like placed an immense amount of strain on my family and kind of like was really hard growing up. Uh, but, you know, that catalyzed my interest in science. That made me, oh, wow, like one gene difference made, made the di all the difference, right? And so that kind of snowballed into where I am now, right? And a whole career and a tremendous amount of things. And so sometimes, you know, it's hard to see it, but adversities can almost be a blessing. Not all of them, right? Because some things are just horrible. And, you know, a lot of times just things aren't fair, but sometimes positive things can come out of, you know, horrible situations. So like, like Frankel's book, right? I mean, he made an amazing, powerful book and got this amazing, powerful message uh, from one of the most horrific circumstances of all time. So um, yeah, one thing that I really wanted to touch on uh, that resonated with me, and I think it's going to resonate with a lot of listeners, you know, especially, uh, you know, young people is, you know, this idea that somebody told you that you're not cut out for biology and that, you know, you should just stick to, you should start typing instead. Cause you know, you're not, you're not cut out to be a scientist. Could you elaborate on that? Yes. You know, it's probably one of the things in hindsight that made me a scientist on so many levels. And so the story is that when I was going into high school in the ninth grade, you had to meet with your guidance counselor. Well, I use the word meet loosely. You waited in a line and you, you got to the front of the line and they had a little card file in front of them full of three by five cards and they pulled out the one with your name on it. And they told you what classes you were allowed to take as your freshman ninth grade electives. And it was only if you were quote unquote good at science that you would be allowed to take ninth grade biology. Otherwise you had to find something else. And this actually made a big difference because it was only if you took, if you took ninth grade biology, you were on the kind of quote unquote science intensive track. You take biology, then chemistry, then AP physics, then AP chemistry and get that second year of chemistry and get all the AP versions. But if you didn't take biology in ninth grade, you were on the non-science track where you just muddled through some biology, chemistry, physics class, and then you are not going to be a scientist. And I knew that I was good at math. I thought that I was good at science. And I got to the front of the line and I had seen all my friends getting recommended for biology and thought, oh, cool, I'm going to be in biology with my friends. And the guidance counselor says, oh, you're not approved to take ninth grade biology because your eighth grade teacher said that you are not skilled at science. And, you know, there's so many levels of, you know, in any day and age telling a 14 year old girl that she's not good at science and let alone in the year 1992, um, maybe it was more common back then, maybe we would be, hopefully that practice is no longer happening but to actively discourage me and just completely gatekeep me out of a science class, even though I really loved math and science. At that point, I wanted to be a math major. I was thinking about career in math, but science was a key part of that. And that's pretty devastating. So yeah, my options were pretty slim. I took keyboarding because I was pretty good at typing already. I thought, well, this will be real easy. 
surprisingly, that has come in very handy as I probably type tens of thousands of words a day. So I got a solid foundation on typing in the ninth grade. Um, but then that probably is what led me to being a scientist. And I eventually got into science because I joined Science Olympiad and had a great coach who then said, why did you not take biology? And I said, well, they wouldn't let me. And she rolled her eyes as high as they could go and said, we're going to fix that and came up with a plan for me to be able to get through all the classes. But there were two things about it that, that probably made me a scientist. And one, the kind of, you know, somewhat funny, but also serious one is that People who know me know that if you want me to do something, you should probably tell me I can't, um, which also comes out of some adversity that I faced earlier in my life that has shaped me into someone who is like that by some genetics and some adversity mixed in there. But also because then when I got thinking about, I was raised to have a very fixed mindset. And if I had heard you're really good at science, and then took this science class with ever expecting me to be really good, I would have had that fixed mindset of, oh my goodness, I'm afraid of, you know, the bar is set high. So all I can do is disappoint people. There's no room to exceed that. And I probably would have kind of hated science or been afraid of it or wouldn't be something I was passionate about. But because I got into it, in a way that it was just purely 100% for me as an after school hobby, and nobody was expecting much of me. And I could come in and, and have that freedom to, to be intrinsically motivated towards science. That I think made a really huge difference. And actually very similarly, how I ended up getting really excited about chemistry research. It was because no one was expecting much and I worked really hard at something that I was passionate about and then that really cemented it as something I want to do for my career. Wow, I mean, thank goodness, you know, you didn't take what this eighth grade teacher said to you to heart because then we would have missed <laughs> out on a, a wonderful professor and all the research that your lab group has done over time. And, you know, the research is really fascinating. I think this would be a good segue into that. So could you describe like the overarching goal of your research and what your lab does? Yes, absolutely. And actually before that, I have to say that thank goodness for my friends who said, hey, you should join Science Olympiad. And really, really thank goodness for Dr. Marcia Sprang at Esperanza High School, who was the teacher who really made me love science. She was our Science Olympiad coach. And very ironically, in well, super ironically, she was a biochemistry PhD. And at the time I had zero idea what that meant. I had zero idea what a PhD meant, what grad school was. I didn't really understand biochemistry, but I find it kind of a neat uh, circle that I now have a PhD and work in the field of not biochemistry, but chemical biology. And so that's a great segue into our research. And so actually, the, if I had to use a term to describe the type of research we do, it would be supramolecular chemistry. And that's the idea of building molecules in order to create an architecture that has a function beyond the sum of its parts. So it's essentially building with Lego bricks. Am I allowed to say Lego is copyrighted. It's building with, with those little bricks with all the nubbins and holes on them, just so you don't get in trouble with your podcast. It's like building with those bricks, but those are molecules. And there's a big difference between just a random, any parent who's ever had to build one of these with their kids knows that there's a big difference between a random bag of bricks and the completed fire truck or whatever it is. On a molecular level, they're the same, but when you take kind of design and a process of assembly, you can build something that has a really cool function. And so we love doing that at the molecular level. And instead of the little bumps and holes on the bricks, we're using things like hydrogen bonds or van der Waals interactions, kind of all of the bumps and knobs that are on molecules and have different properties that can make them fit together and recognize each other in very specific ways. And so that's the research that's always fascinated me. In my postdoctoral research, I realized, I kind of came to an appreciation during grad school and then branched into this area in my postdoc, that biomolecules, the molecules inside of our bodies and in nature, are 
the coolest building bricks ever. Um, the proteins and nucleic acids, they've been evolved over billions of years to recognize each other and fit together in these extremely exquisite and precise ways. They've been, you know, developed these incredible functions as motors and as catalysts and you know, the ability to assemble into all sorts of different shapes of structures. And so everything that we do in our lab is focused on thinking about, well, A, where do we, where can we identify an unmet need in biomedicine, in the environment, uh, tools that researchers need? And then we bring together a really interdisciplinary team of people, chemists, biologists, people in material science backgrounds. Sometimes we've had neuroscientists in the lab and everyone comes together and says, what's the best way to take, you know, this toolbox of molecular bricks and design a system that could address this problem. And then we're essentially engineers, actually we're engineers at the molecular level. And then we design build, test, and when things fail, it's because we didn't understand how these molecules interact. And then we're really interested to gain that fundamental knowledge as well of, of what is it about these interactions that we didn't understand? And then can we can we learn something interesting that, that contributes to the general knowledge through that? Wow, incredible. I love, I love the analogy between, you know, like playing with Legos and you know, also playing with like atoms and bonds. That's awesome to, to build something, you know, useful or, you know, beautiful. Um, so to go into a little bit more detail, right, uh, one of the things, you, you know, you work with and you design are, you know, aptamer biosensors. And for the people who, you know, don't really know a lot about science, an aptamer is, you know, a single-stranded uh, DNA or RNA that will bind really, really, really tightly to, to some sort of target. And you can build it in a way, you can assemble the Legos and then assemble the molecules in such a way, I shouldn't say Legos. Uh, you can assemble these, these building blocks. <laughs> We're probably <laughs> safe, but it was partly joking, but also I, I hear their IP people are pretty uh, into Okay, okay. But you can assemble these building blocks in such a way that they, they will bind a target very, very well. So can you describe some you know, avenues uh, where you're excited to use, you know, to build these aptamer biosensors and like what, what places you're excited to use them? Yes, there are a lot of places where we can use them. And in fact, to understand what those are, a good analogy to think about is antibodies. And so over the last year, we've all heard an awful lot about antibodies. And so antibodies are proteins, they're made of amino acids, your body makes them. And the the reason your body makes them is to respond to some foreign object, a virus or a toxin or whatever it encounters. And when your body's making antibodies, it, it's basically making a whole bunch of different protein structures that all have different shapes. And then when it finds one that happens to have just the right shape to bind to the virus or the bacterial cell or the toxin or whatever it is, it remembers that and says, aha, okay, that can bind and then that triggers an immune response. And researchers for you know, decades have been using antibodies. They're really the mainstay of things like clinical diagnostics. So if you um, go and ever get blood drawn and have tests run on it, there's a really good chance there's an antibody test involved. Home pregnancy tests are all based on antibodies. We've seen antibodies have become huge in therapeutics. So both kind of antibody treatments for diseases like what, what's being seen with COVID, but also things called antibody drug conjugates, where then antibodies can be generated to go and bind to cancer cells specifically and deliver a drug to those cancer cells. Um, but there's some certain limitations with antibodies. They're expensive to produce. Um, they're not super thermally stable, which is a challenge for biosensing in, you know, resource limited places. And so nucleic acids are essentially, or sorry, aptamers are essentially the nucleic acid version of antibodies. And they do also exist in nature, but we can generate them in the lab via a similar evolution process. You just start with a whole bunch of different sequences. You have trillions and trillions, quadrillions of sequences that all fold into different shapes. And then you have a selection whereby you can pull out the small number of sequences that actually have the right shape to bind to the toxin or the protein or the virus particle that you're trying to target. And now you can use those in all of the same ways or most of the same ways that you use antibodies. But the benefit is that 
we can synthesize them chemically. So we can you know, make them in huge batches in a lab. Also, you can unfold and refold them. So if you take an antibody and you heat it up and it unravels into you know, spaghetti, this, and you cool back down, like the spaghetti does not come back together into an antibody. It does not come back into a functional molecule. However, nucleic acids do. So you can heat it, it can, you know, you can ship a diagnostic test. It could get super hot in the back of a truck um, in a box and shipping. And yes, it won't work when it's at that elevated temperature, but as soon as it cools right back down, the aptamer can fold back into the sh exact shape that it had before and it works just as well. Sometimes it almost works better than before. We often actually heat and then cool them in order to get them to fold properly before we use them. So you have a, a whole lot of advantages for things like clinical diagnostic tests. We're also using them for applications to image different RNAs inside of cells. So to image kind of where these molecules are, are located in cells. You know, I used to think of a cell as just this you know, circular thing with a bunch of stuff floating around in it, but it's not at all. It's this very crowded environment and stuff, you know, gets specific molecules get pulled to very specific parts of the cell. And we can use these aptamers to visualize that. We're also using them to do things like um, be able to discover better uh, biocatalysts, discover better routes to synthesizing high value chemicals like pharmaceuticals. Wow, uh, absolutely incredible stuff. I mean, I've kind of been exposed to aptamers for a long time and yes, they are. There's a lot of potential there. Um, another thing that I think the audience is gonna think is really, really cool is your work on uh, xenonucleic acids, right? So for everybody who's a little, you know, what is that? So DNA, deoxyribonucleic acid uh, is kind of how nature decided to put all the nucleic acids together in its polymer chain. Um, and then ribonucleic acid, RNA, is kind of like the, the other way nature has, has done this. But your lab is doing xenonucleic acids. Could you talk about what those are and maybe what some of the advantages, you know, they're in? Yes. So about two decades ago, maybe three now, some researchers in the field started asking this question of why is nature so and not, you know, another way, right? Why, why did nature choose ribose and deoxyribose. Why these very specific chemical structures that went into the backbone of nucleic acids? And it, it started as a very basic science endeavor, I think. Um, somewhat, you know, a little bit of people thinking about the chemical origins of life. And now it's, it's really found a place in, in applications as well. But um, there's always been this interest in, well, could you change it, you know, are there other things that could work? So nucleic acids function on the ability of these two chains to line up, you know, kind of opposite of each other in opposite directions, kind of like, you know, how traffic down a, a, a you know, two lane road is flowing in opposite directions. But then much like a ladder, you have all of these base pairs that form that, that make the two strands um, be able to recognize each other and say, yes, we should, we should bind to each other. Um, and so there's been a lot of interest in saying, well, what can we change in, you know, kind of that, the, the, you know, side of the ladder, what can we change in that backbone and have this still be able to form those same base pairs. And so researchers, gosh, over the last 30 years have explored tons and tons of different structures and some of them don't work, but a lot of them do and a lot of things that look wildly different from DNA and RNA. So one of our favorites is called peptide nucleic acid, and it has a backbone that actually looks, you know, as the name says, much more like a peptide than it does even a nucleic acid, but it's still able to recognize and bind to its complementary DNA or RNA sequence. And actually does it even better than DNA and RNA do. And so what started is, I think, a lot of um, kind of curiosity-driven science has now um, become a real mainstay, again, in a lot of fields. So there's potential for these uh, xenonucleic acids that are being used in things like therapeutics. There's a lot of potential in diagnostics because you know, I mentioned a benefit of nucleic acids of aptamers over antibodies is the thermal stability but aptamers, if they're made of DNA or RNA, can still get chewed up by enzymes that are present in, say, a human blood sample. But the xenonucleic acids, since they don't exist in nature, 
many of the enzymes don't recognize them. So that also makes them useful, well, makes them useful for therapeutics, but also can make them really useful for diagnostics. And they just have some other cool properties. So it's, it's a field that uh, we've been excited to be a part of. It's something I've been excited about since I was a postdoc, and we've always had, had one foot in that area as well. Uh, absolutely incredible. I mean, it, it sounds like, you know, you're taking, you know, the template that nature kind of did it the way that nature did it. And then, you know, using your knowledge as a chemist and, you know, as an engineer to tweak that a little bit to, to fit the needs of, you know, us, us as humanity. Um, so I don't want to, you know, take up too much of your time. So I only really have, you know, like two more questions. Um, so the first is, I noticed that you had a brief stint in industry. Uh, yes. And I'm curious, you know, why you chose academia versus industry and you know how what went into making that decision oh that's a great question that the there's an hour-long answer but i won't give you that one i will say that the the time in industry was in part uh, part of a two-body challenge or situation or whatever we're calling it these days where my spouse had a few more years left in graduate school and so I didn't want to move far away and then always be kind of out of sync as we went through our academic careers and so there's an opportunity for me to work in industry and so that seemed good but the other side of it is that for gosh so many years from not long after I started doing undergrad research maybe a year after I started doing undergrad research until literally a month before I started applying for faculty jobs, I knew that this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to be in academia, but I struggled with just overpowering self-doubt. As far as I was concerned, it was absolutely 100% unattainable. There was, it wasn't even worth talking about or mentioning to anyone because there was absolutely no chance that it could happen. So I spent so many years thinking, well, what else? Okay, that's the thing I wanna do. It is impossible. So what else could I be happy doing? And I had convinced myself that I could be happy in industry and that was the plan. And I could be happy there. It's, it, in being in industry can be a fantastic job. It just wasn't the right job for me. You know, the career advice I always give to students is no job is perfect. Every job has some things that are amazing and some things that are pretty horrible. And the goal is to figure out what that is for the different career paths you're considering. And then think about yourself and your personality and your own, the way you're wired. And what are the set of important things that are, or what are the set of good things that are really important to you? And what are the set of bad things that are kind of tolerable to you? And that should guide your choice. And so for me, the good things in, in industry just weren't all that important to me, but the bad things were actually ones that were a struggle for me. And in academia, the good things were really, really important to me. And the, neg the downsides were like, oh, okay, it's not great, but I can live with it. And so I knew that this is what I wanted to do. And so it, it, it was actually in some ways kind of good that I tried it and then um, realized that it wasn't for me because otherwise, you know, if I'd had a really good experience, I would have just done that for the rest of my life. Maybe that would have been okay. But my PhD advisor after that, we were debriefing on my experience and he said, you know, some of the more valuable lessons you learn in life are about what you don't want to do with your life. And so I thought, ah, that is really good wisdom. Wow. And, you know, I know that we've only just met, but I'm, I'm so, so proud of you for proving yourself wrong and, you know, getting past that self-doubt because, you know, obviously you have made it. You are a full-time faculty member at a university and that's, that's incredible. Um, so my next question would be, uh, you know, advice for scientists at, you know, different levels. So maybe at the first level, maybe a high school student or, you know, an undergraduate just starting their scientific career, uh, you know, the second level, maybe a graduate student. And then at the third level, you know, kind of more senior, like a postgraduate, uh, you know, maybe seeking to get into academia or, you know, just a postgraduate. Oh, man. Um, I would say that at that early career level, if you're thinking about science, if at all possible, try to get involved in research, whether that's through a science Olympiad team or a lot of high schools have iGEM teams that are doing research projects, 
or even if it's watching YouTube videos and finding things that you can do at home. We're actually in our group meeting today talking about, because the paper we're reading was the definition of a scientist. And my definition is pretty broad. It's anyone who looks around at the world and wonders about something, wonders why is that the way it is or what, what is that? Um, and then goes about trying to find the answer to it. So seven-year-olds sitting on the playground saying, hmm, I picked up this little bug. I wonder what's inside and splitting it up. That's science. I feel like that is science. And, but often this is something that, um, you know, at Emory we're working to change, but it's still a huge challenge that so much of what you get in science classes is not giving you a view into what it means to be a scientist. And so I went into college not having chemistry on my radar. I have, will openly say that my freshman chemistry class, though I had great professors, it did little to change that because I came out of that class thinking, okay, if I become a chemist, I imagine I must sit in a room and convert grams into moles and moles into grams and balance redox equations all day. And that doesn't sound like a lot of fun. It wasn't until I got into research. And I think that's a really common refrain. And, and hopefully we can keep creating change in order to make research experiences more accessible because right now it often, you know, is a matter of privilege to be able to do research, but there are, changes that are happening in order to bring research opportunities into the curriculum at the undergraduate level. And, you know, hopefully, I don't know, but I hope it's happening at the K-12 level as well, because I think that really shows you what is it like to be a scientist. And so you can really dislike, you can, you can aggressively dislike your science classes, but still love being a scientist. So if you don't like your science classes, still give it a chance. Um, if you like wondering and you like designing your own experiments and trying to figure out how things work, that's what science research is. It's not sitting around and memorizing the carbon cycle. Um, so that's, if you're high school or undergrad, I would say if you are a graduate student, Oh goodness, what would my advice be? So many pieces of advice. Maybe one of them, one of the key pieces of advice might not be the most important one, but it was the one that I never learned as a graduate student. And I wish I would have, because I learned this later in my career. It's been so helpful, is to find a supportive group of people, of friends, peers, and support each other. Um, you know, we all know people who are like, oh yeah grad school is easy. I got this. Like, don't hang out with those people. You also know the people who are, you know, really overly grim about it, um, who just say, oh, it's nothing will ever work. And it's all, you know, this is all leading to nowhere. You know, maybe that's not, um, not so healthy either. But if you can find that group of people who say, yes, I have big goals. I want to do great things. I want to work hard and push myself and learn a lot of new things. But I'm also gonna be authentic about the fact that it's hard and I fail a lot and I feel discouraged and I have self-doubt and I have these struggles. But I want to push through those because science is hard and science has failure. And, um, and if you can find that group of people and be there and be authentic with each other and support each other through the down days and celebrate with each other on the good days and you know, be that person for each other, that is so unbelievably powerful. And just something as simple as meeting for coffee once a month, all of a sudden over years, you, you develop a really, really incredible support network that can carry you through some bad storms when they happen. Um, so that'd be my advice there. I would say early career, well, for early career researchers thinking about academia, or especially for people who have already made the bridge into academia and are in their first few years, um, well, maybe equally for both, is something we don't talk nearly enough about is that the way you get this job, there's a big gap between what you do and the skills you develop in order to get this job and the skills that you need to be successful in this job. And so you get this job by 
doing a lot of research as a graduate student and then doing more research as a postdoc. And hopefully there's more to it than that. You're mentoring people, you're learning how to teach, but really the focus is research. And then you get this job and you run very few experiments, maybe a few in your first year when you're you know, getting your lab set up. But the research skills are still important, but there's a whole other set of skills you need to be successful. It's people management, it's finances, it's conflict resolution, it's you know, leadership and strategic planning and project management. All of those things are unbelievably important, but there's a really good chance that you've never had formal training in them. And so if you're still a postdoc, now is a great time to start building those skills. If you haven't already yet, there's tons of great books. I listen to podcasts when I'm running. Um, I just devout, once I realized there were all these organizational leadership resources out there, I just started like devouring podcasts of, oh my goodness, there's a podcast that can teach me how to, you know, think about this or how to deal with this. Or there's, you know, we had a, you know, we do a big exercise around our lab culture. One of my friends gave me a book and said, just read this book and do what they do in this book. And it will, you know, it will help you. And it was so unbelievably helpful. So I, I would say, you know, yes, the research is important. I know that that presses in on, you know, a lot of life and, and everyone feels busy um, and a little bit overwhelmed, but, uh, you know, building some of those skills can actually make things go much more smoothly and end up saving time in the long run. And much more importantly, once we're in these academic jobs, we are leading a team of researchers. Or if you go to industry, difference is industry will give you much more training in this. But no matter where you go, you're going to be leading a team of people. And the extent to which we grow as leaders determines the quality of the experience for the people we lead. And so, um, you know, Tom Peters, who I love, is a, a you know, organizational leadership expert. You know, he says we have a moral, well, he says we have a moral obligation to develop the people who work for us. And, you know, the way he talks, I, I, I sense, you know, there's also this moral obligation to develop ourselves as leaders because, again, the, the people we lead are counting on us to do that well to create a healthy environment for them. Wow. Absolutely. I, that's going to be so like such good advice for people at all levels. Thank you so much for that. Um, yeah, that really does it for our, our, you know, planned programming here. So thank you so much for being on the show. It was an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Um, yeah, thank you so much. Again, it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. And thanks for bringing this podcast to our community.